0: Well, thanks again for joining us online wherever you're at. It's a good day to be together. So earlier, Mark just uh, gave a word of thanks for your generosity in so many different ways. Um, I just want to give you an update, church family, that because of your faithfulness and generosity, as we came to the end of the year through our general offerings and through giving to ministry expansion, we were able to meet all of our expenses. This was huge. So thank you for that. And thank you for the other ways that you're generously living and pointing other people to Christ, like the hundred families I just read about in the Westside Elementary in Sun Prairie, their newsletter to families. We were able to help. You guys, you were able to help 100 families in a really tough time getting them food week in and week out. Thanks to those of you who have been gardening in our food pantry garden. You guys, 5,325 pounds to date, all of it going to our food pantries, a lot of it going through fill the van as well. And you don't know this part, but thanks for your generosity this last year that allowed us to be generous to some of our partners around the world and one special partner right here in the city. So Pastor Alex G., Fountain of Life, has been a good friend of mine personally of our church over the years. And uh, this last year, we were able to give a generous grant, over $20,000 that has allowed their ministry in in Nehemiah ministry to actually move their Black History Month from just being an in-person course to now going online and reaching more and more people. So here's his note to us. Mark and Door Creek Church family, your attentiveness to the needs of our ministry and this community is amazing. We are floored by your generosity and friendship. Thank you for the investment in healing Peace, Pastor Alex G. So thanks you guys. Great, great stuff. So we're gonna talk about cleaning house, Jesus cleaning house. And as I was thinking about the text and what Jesus did and turning over the tables, it reminded me of a guy named Nick who used to show up unannounced, uninvited, to the churches where I used to work in Wheaton, Illinois. I'll never forget the day after he'd done this a couple of times to our church and other churches we we're in Edmond Chapel, this big chapel, part of Wheaton College where we were worshiping on a Sunday morning, a couple thousand people there. I'm standing on the stage, it's the opening hymn and we're singing the hymn and Pastor Hughes is right next to me and we're singing and I look at the back and I go, there's Nick. You couldn't miss Nick. I mean, he was like a football middle linebacker and there he was in the back and he's starting to come forward and I'm going to Kent, he's coming. He's coming. Do you see him? Nick's coming. What do you want me to do? And Kent's just singing away and he's he's acting like I'm not even talking to him, like Nick's not, and Nick's walking down to the front of the church at the beginning of the service. And I'm going, oh my goodness, what is he going to do? Now, unlike this platform that has a couple of steps coming up, that did not have any steps. And so imagine that this big burly guy is just thumping up during the opening hymn, and he gets to right about here when he leapfrogs on the stage, and he lands here. And I wasn't thinking, I wasn't planning, but all I know is I was right there when Nick landed on the stage. And I put my arm around Nick while people were singing, and I walked him off the stage, and I remember saying, hey, Nick, how you doing? And when I got him off the stage and we went out the door to the parking lot, I said to Nick, Nick, what are you thinking? Man, what are you doing? What are you doing, Nick? Now, you might imagine Nick didn't have all of his faculties because when he'd come into the church, he'd say things like, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. These are words referring to Jesus Christ. He literally thought he was Jesus Christ. Well, that question... What are you doing? It's the same kind of question that the religious leaders asked the real Alpha and Omega Jesus Christ when he showed up at church one Passover Saturday. Grab your Bibles. We're in John chapter 2. John chapter 2 verses 13 through 25. Cleaning house. Here we're going to learn that Jesus isn't safe. The Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus that John followed, the Jesus that he wants us to believe in so that in believing in him, we might have life. He wasn't safe. He isn't safe, but he's good. That's what this passage is all about. So as I'm reading it here, why don't you just kind of, why don't you close your eyes? Hey, by the way, you know we've got message notes, right? So you can pull those up. So grab the message notes so you can follow along. And that might just help you as the scripture keeps getting deeper into our mind and our heart and how we live our lives. So just close your eyes. I want you to just imagine that you're there in the temple courts on Passover day when Jesus showed up to church, right? Here we go. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple courts, His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he was spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs, the miracles he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew all. What was in each person? All right, there's three questions that we're gonna work through as we go through this passage. Why did Jesus clean house? That's in the opening section, 13 through 17. What, does Jesus have the authority or the right to clean house? That's in verses 18 and 19. And then how should one respond when Jesus cleans house? God's house or Our house, our own lives. So why Jesus' clean house? What was going on here? Like, this isn't just Walmart, Karen, or Ken having a fit on a bad day. This is Jesus, the son of God, and it's pretty obvious he's mad. There's a category called righteous anger. In his pure holiness, he's rightly angry about something. What is it? What's going on here? So let's do a little work in the background as we just kind of get confronted with this fact that Jesus isn't safe. So Jerusalem is where we're at. He's been up north in Galilee. He's coming down, even though it says he went up. Because anywhere you go, from anywhere you've come from to Jerusalem, you always end the journey up. Because it's up on the mountain, the old Mount Moriah. Very likely where Abraham sacrificed his son Isaac. So we're in Jerusalem and it's a special time of year. It's like, it's like 4th of July. It's Independence Day for the Jewish people. That's Passover. Passover is celebrating when God redeemed his people and delivered them from 400 years of slavery when he sent the angel of death and because they took God at his word and took the blood of the lamb and put it over the doorposts of their home the angel of death passed over their house so their firstborn sons weren't killed. And when all the firstborns were killed in Egypt, they said, that's it. You gotta send them out of here, Pharaoh. And so they were out and they're celebrating that. And that's the first of a seven day feast that's called Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because you remember what happened. If you don't, here's what happened God bolts them out of Egypt in the middle of the night. They didn't know it was gonna be that night. So they were doing like we've been doing during COVID. They had their sourdough going, right? So they had the bread going, but it hadn't raised yet. And so they took that bread that had not raised yet. And for seven days during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they were to remember how God snatched them out of the middle of the night. And they took their kids and their grandparents and their stuff. And they took the jewelry and the fine precious metals that the Egyptians gave them. And they went out with their dough. that wasn't going to rise to remind them of God's mighty deliverance. So it's Jerusalem. It's the temple at Passover. When you think about the temple, I want you to think about this is a religious center and this is a political center. It's like our nation's capital with the national cathedral all in one building. This is where we're at. And it's Independence Day. This is a great feast. People are coming from all over, not just town, not just from the countryside, not just from all over Israel. They're coming from all over the world, like in Acts 2, when people who were Jewish followers of God were coming to celebrate Passover. So when you think about the Temple Mount, I want you to look at these pictures. Here's a model of the Temple And what you see in the temple is this beautiful structure. And it's massive. The temple mount here is on 35 acres. All right? So this is where the first temple was built, Solomon. This is where it was rebuilt in the days of Nehemiah, right? And this is the very place that that had been rebuilt by Herod for his own glory and to make peace with the Jewish people. And when you think about the temple and how it's laid out, think about these concentric circles. So look at this next picture. So what you have here is you have these, uh, these rings. So a Gentile, that'd be you and me, we could get into this outer court. It's called the court of the Gentiles. But you can't go beyond that, risking your life then if you're a Jewish woman you could get into the court of the women right here in green but the women couldn't go any further and we as Gentiles couldn't get there and then you had in the blue here the court of Israel that's where the Jewish men could go and then from there you have this place that just the priests could go and then halfway through this yellow structure you've got the Holy of Holies, where just the high priest on one day a year was allowed to go in. So fearful was that day that he would wear bells on the hem of his garment, tied with a rope so that if anything went bad, as he walked into the very presence of God, they could pull him out. So Jesus is in the court of the Gentiles. This is where anybody could come to learn more about God. So why does Jesus clean house? Well, well, quite frankly, because their worship was corrupt. Jesus says in verse 16, what? Stop turning my father's house into a market. So this was a meeting place and they've turned it into a marketplace. This is a place to meet God. This is a place to pray. Remember what he says at the other accounts in the gospels about Jesus clearing the temple? By the way, the other accounts have this event all at the back end of their gospels in the last week of Jesus' life, right? But John has it at the beginning. So the question is, what's going on here? Was there more than one cleansing of the temple? And I think, I'm not positive, that actually there were but we remember what Jesus said in the other cleansing accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He said this, this is my father's house. This is a house of prayer for the nations, not just for my people, for the nations, for the Israelites who are always to be a light to the Gentiles. They're always meant to bring the blessing of God to all the families of the world, and he said, "But you have turned it into a house of thieves, a den of thieves. So they've turned this meeting place into a marketplace, and their worship of God and all the trappings and all the selling of things. And so, why are they? Why are the, all these animals there? Because people were coming from far away, so you didn't have to bring your perfect animal, spot, spotless lamb, or if you were poor, your doves. You could just buy them." At the temple there. And you had to pay a shekel, a half shekel tax. And so you could get your money changed there. And so that's what's going on in the middle of all that. And Jesus is confronting them, and he's turning the tables of their worship, say, This is all broken. This is all about external things. And you're crowding out the very people that I have come to reach and to save. And you're making it harder, not easier, to your religion. And all that's going on here in this marketplace. The mission of God for all people was obstructed. Their worship corrupted. And Jesus cleans house because this is a time of cleansing. So here's what the Jewish families would do as they celebrated Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They'd go through their whole house. And they'd clean out anything that had yeast in it. Any yeast, anywhere, they got rid of it. They threw it out. And yeast is throughout the scriptures, old and new, this image, this symbol representing sin. So this is a time of cleansing. This is a time of purification, not just celebration that God had had delivered them, but God delivered his people into a relationship. And so this is a time of consecration and purification. And Jesus is coming to clean house. God's house, his father's house, and their own hearts as well. So God's house is in a mess. His mission to bring blessing to all the families is being obstructed. His people are lost. The worship of God is replaced by all this religious activity that ultimately is rooted in pride, in power, and for these religious leaders, there's a fair amount of greed going on as well. So I ran across this quote this week. I love listening to Tony Evans. And he said this about religion. I've never heard it before, but this is a great image. Just, you hear it. Religion is like a pacifier, the old paci. Remember, you could never have too many passies. With five kids, I'll tell you, we went through our share of passies. All right, religion is like a pacifier. How so? It will either keep you busy, right? Keep you busy or put you to sleep. And the busyness of religion is doing, 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 doing for God. Because the whole construct is flipped upside down. I've got to do these good things so that God accepts me and his favor rests upon me. As as opposed to resting and trusting in his grace and his mercy. And out of that, worshiping him. And so the busyness of sucking on religion is just like a baby sucking on a pacifier looking for milk. It ain't going to happen, is it? Not going to happen. So it leaves you empty, wanting more. Or, like the pacifier so often would do, and we love the pacifier for that, just puts the person to sleep. And that's God's people. They they were empty, and they were asleep. And so John, right away, is reminding us that the one that is called in verse 29 of chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God? This Jesus who we might think is gentle, meek, and mild. He says, well, that's part of it. And the other side of it, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus isn't safe. But he is good. And I wonder if, if John depicting this whole scene here and helping us understand the heart of Christ here and his righteous indignation and anger over what was going on in his father's house and how it was blocking the very mission of God to reach all people i wonder if that if that squares with with our view of god is your jesus a wimp is your jesus really safe When our kids were young, I loved reading them, The Chronicles of Narnia, all seven volumes by C.S. Lewis. If you need a great pandemic read for kids, this is it, man. Chronicles of Narnia. Forget the movies. Go to the books. They're awesome. And in the opening book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's this great scene where the kids, Peter, Lucy, and Edmund, are talking to Mr. Beaver, who's telling them about Aslan, who's this Christ figure. He's this this lion. So here's how it goes. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you not safe, but good. He's good. John is making it clear. He is good. Everyone's in shock what they've just seen. The merchants, the animals, the disciples, the crowds, everybody's going, what's going on here? I mean, just kind of imagine it like somebody walks in right now and I like run over to the drum set and they start throwing stuff all around. They come and knock me over and push the table over, whip over this monitor and we're all going, what's going on? They were in shock. They were in shock. Things are tense. The religious leaders are ready to pounce. And so they go into power up mode. They're flexing their religious authoritative muscles and they demand A sign. A miracle, a miracle to prove that Jesus has authority to say and do what he's just said. That this is my father's house and you could rebuild it in three days? I don't think so. So what do they want, these religious leaders who are wondering, does Jesus have rightful claim and authority to do and say what he just said? Uh, They want proof. They want credentials. They want his papers. And their papers would be very simple. Show us you're a prophet of God. Show us who you are by right now giving us a sign. Like we're talking a miracle. Go ahead. Go ahead. Do a miracle. Because we want to know. Because what you said is just blasphemous. That this is your father's house. Like you're related to God. He's your father. And by the way, overturning the tables is, we're taking that personally. That's our domain. That's a place where we have authority. And by the way, a little bit of financial gain. So Jesus' reply is brilliant. You want a sign? Well, I'll give you a sign, but hey, I need your involvement. So here's what I want you to do. Destroy this temple. Here it's temple. Just take it all apart. Just turn it into rubble and then give me three days. I'll put it all back together again. Now, They don't get what he's talking about. Nobody got what he's talking about. The religious leaders didn't get it. The people standing around didn't get it. His own disciples didn't get it. John assumes that we wouldn't get it. That's why in verse 21, look at it. He says, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. Jesus' sign is, you guys are going to destroy my body. My body, which is the temple, which is the place where sacrifice is made so that you can meet God. The, the temple, which is a place where God's glory resides. You don't meet God in a place anymore. I'm here. I fulfill all the sacrifices. I'm the high priest. I offer the sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice. And, and so you, you just need to know that here's the sign. In a few years, you're going to take me down. And then you're going to nail me up on a cross with the help of the Roman authorities. And then three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. That's the sign. That's the miracle. That lets you know that I am God. And as God and his son, I have authority to say what I said and to do what I've done. So Jesus has made it clear. It's my father's house. It's my house. The temple was synonymous with Jesus' life and ministry. The temple is all about, everything about the temple in the Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus. It's where God's glory is resting. God placed himself right in Jesus' body. John 1, 14. And the word became flesh. And he lived among us, and we beheld his glory glory of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. So that temple has never been a safe place, it's always been holy ground. But Jesus is now saying it's not about ground, it's not about geography, it's about me. This is where you meet God. And I'm going to make a way in the midst of all of your corruption and sin and lostness for you who think you know you're in the right place and for others who know they're not anywhere. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. My death, my resurrection. So it's easy to look at the story and just focus on, man, Jesus is ticked off. He is really angry. And you know what? Sometimes, sometimes that's our view of God. And man, he is just ticked off at all of us. So I want you to look at this phrase. Jesus is saying here in this passage, you think I'm mad at you. No, 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 no. I'm mad about you. I'm mad about you. I love you. For God so loved the world, John three sixteen, that he gave his one and only son. He says, I'm mad about you. You think I'm mad? The reason I'm mad right now and turning the tables on this bogus worship is because I came to seek and to save that which is lost. I came to bring the blessing of Abraham to all the families of the world. And you guys are impeding it. And so this is all for your good, not just my glory and my Father's glory. And I wonder if we've got this whole thing upside down. Like you think right now God and Jesus are mad at you. And John's saying, no, 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 no. Jesus is mad about you. He's crazy about you. He's in love with you. And he's tenacious in his love. That his love would pursue us all the way to the cross jesus isn't safe but john's telling us jesus is good willing to lay down his life for you and for me so how should one respond when jesus cleans house verses 20 through 25 well how did they respond the establishment well they kind of they didn't respond right they're more protecting their own honor than concerned with God's honor. Their traditions are more important than the purity of worship that God is calling them to. Their position, their power, and their money, far more important than recognizing who Jesus is and turning around and following him. Their response is seen in what they didn't do. Jesus gives a word of warning. He gives a word of rebuke, a word of correction. He's calling him to turn back to God like all the other prophets, and They refuse. I like what Warren Wiersbe says. Dr. Wiersbe was a great prof. He always had these great sayings. And he writes this. Conviction leads either to conversion or opposition. When you're convicted by God through his Holy Spirit, it's going to take you one, of two ways. You're going to turn around. You're going to convert. And you're going to converge your life into God's. You're going to trust. You're going to submit your life to his. Or you're going to oppose it. You are not going to let him have authority over your life. They were entrenched in a spirit of opposition. Paul will describe this as a form of godliness. A form. It looks like the real thing. Kind of. It's not. It's broken. It's empty. Jesus called it whitewashed religion. Looks good on the outside. But like a tomb. It's all death on the inside. So this kind of emptiness that was dripping with hypocrisy is what Frederick Douglass called the biggest gap as he approached this whole issue of slavery in his day. You know about Frederick Douglass, perhaps the greatest abolitionist of our nation's history, former slave, championed the civil rights causes for African Americans right he was a devout follower of Jesus he comes to faith in his teen years when he hears his master's wife reading Job and overhearing that this Job man who's going through all this suffering he could relate to that was a man who could bless God and trust God Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so he was intrigued. He taught himself how to read. He starts reading Joe. He reads the scriptures. He places his faith in Jesus Christ as his redeemer, friend, and savior. And so he had a phrase. He had a phrase that went like this. Between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. Bigger than the two sides of the Grand Canyon, bigger than the two shores of the Atlantic, the widest gap. This Christianity in our land and the Christianity of Jesus Christ. In his article, The Radical Faith of Frederick Douglass, published in Christianity Today back in January, February's edition, 2018, D.H. Dilbeck writes, for Douglass the problem was not Jesus nor Christianity. It was the hypocrisy of Christians. He condemned what he called the corrupt slaveholding, women whipping, cradle plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity everywhere present in America. He derided the slaveholders who covers his infernal business with the garb of Christianity. They'd utterly abandoned the true Christianity of Christ, inviting the wrath of a just and holy God. John chapter 2 Jesus' cleaning house raises a question. What does Jesus think about our worship? Are we open to him turning some tables on our worship? Is there part of our life? So when I say worship, remember here, our first value is worshiping God in all of life. This isn't like just what we're doing right now, what we do when we get back to our campuses in a room on a Saturday night or a Sunday. No, this is all of life. As we're following Jesus in our life of worship, Is there anything we're doing that's making it more difficult for people to meet Jesus? In our actions, in our attitudes, in our words, in our legalistic pursuit of doing good to receive God's favor, in our conversations about politics injustice a mask are we making it harder or easier for people to meet jesus boy that's going to be a great question in your life group this week guys can't wait for you to mull that over for us to just let that go deep and then there's the people who undoubtedly were shocked at the temple but were enamored later that week when jesus is doing miracles and they see the miracles john says and they believed they believed in him in his name it says And yet, Jesus, knowing the condition of their heart and the nature of their faith, does not reciprocate. He doesn't call them sons and daughters. He does not entrust himself to them because their faith was misplaced. Oh, they were all about following this Jesus miracle worker. That's like having a personal ATM, a little genie in a bottle, like that should come in handy. I like that kind of savior. Not so interested in the son of God who has rightful authority over all things, God's house, my house, my life. Uh, not so much. And so where the religious leaders refuse to reflect on their worship, the crowd's Their faith. You can put it this way. People who want Jesus, they want his work, his miracles, all that stuff. But not his word, his life-giving word, his word that guides us, that we come under, can never share his life. You want his work and not his word? You can't share in his life. Abundant and free. So here's the wild thing. The text is clear. For he knew what was in each person. (laughs) That means right now. He knows everything about me. My motivations. Everything. My actions. All of us. All of you guys. He knows us. He knows the junk in our life. Yet he loves us. He loves us. What a gracious thing that God didn't send Jesus first to come to judge and clean house. Like take us out and start over like he did in Noah's day. But he came as a savior seeking and saving those who are lost. What does Jesus think about your faith? Is it misplaced? Is it in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, your Lord and Savior over every area of your life? And then there's the disciples. They knew Jesus wasn't safe, but with all they had, they believed that he was good. And they lived their life telling others of that fact, even if it meant they would die. And the interesting thing we see in the disciples is, they, they believed in Jesus, not because they saw it, but because of the scriptures talking about Jesus. So look at verse 17. They believed because they remembered the word in Psalm 69. Zeal for your house will consume me. That's written by David a thousand years before Jesus. In verse 22, they, they believe in Jesus so that on that first Easter and afterwards, they, they, they believed in Jesus, they understood Believing that the Old Testament prophecies had been fulfilled in Jesus' death and resurrection. And they believed his own words about his impending death and resurrection. And so all of a sudden we realize here between the crowds who saw the miracles. That seeing isn't believing. Look at this. Seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. That's how the Bible works it out. Now, that's why some of us are going, I, I don't get why they don't get it. Like, I've been telling them about it. They just don't, they don't, they don't get it. Why didn't these people get it that, that saw all the great things that Jesus did? Because seeing is not believing. It's believing that gives you sight. It's believing that gives you life. John says, these things I've written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life I can hear someone right now saying that's that's why I don't follow Christianity. you just asked me to check my brain at the door this is just about a bunch of warm fuzzy feeling stuff and you're asking me to just check and put my intellectual brain on the shelf and that couldn't be further from the truth they actually reasoned it out not from their experience and the emotions of all that was fantastic as he turned the water into wine, as he cleaned house and claimed to be the son of God and would bear witness of that as he conquered death and rose from the dead. But it was the fact, not that they witnessed all those things, but that they read the scriptures about Jesus who fulfilled all those things and everything Jesus said squared with those things and because of the word they believed. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So do you see him? This one who would overturn our bogus worship and call into question our misplaced faith. Do you see this one who is not safe, who has authority to clean your house, my house, my life, your life, but oh so good, the one who cleans house to bring us to God, the one who cleans house, the king who came as a servant who died on a cross, that you and I would live. Let's pray. So Father God, open our eyes, the eyes of our heart, that we might see your great love for us in Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, to be sure, but the Lion of the tribe of Judah that turns over tables of false religion The tables of our false foundations that give us hope and peace and happiness that, that are empty and insufficient for all that life would bring us. Open our eyes, grant us faith, give us hearts that don't hold on to tradition, to our position, to our pride. Lord, humble us by your word we pray and spirit to see you and align our hearts and our lives for you. That all that we do this week Together, individually, makes it easier for people to meet with you. We pray for your honor and the good of the world that you've called us to save. In Christ's name we pray, amen.